It is a joy for Don and me to be with you uh, this morning. I had the privilege of worshiping with you last year. I marveled at the good things that God's doing here and had the privilege of meeting your pastor. Heard about him from mutual friends. And I want you to know what he said about our church in Cape Coral, Florida. Uh, we do sense a kinship with you here. and We're grateful to God for the witness of the gospel in this part of our nation that goes forth from this church. And it's an honor for me to be with you this morning. I want to ask you a question that will provide the platform from which we're going to look at a lot of verses of Scripture this morning under a very important subject. When was the last time you heard a Christian man or woman identified as a God-fearing person? There was a day in our evangelical history when such designations were commonly used. And that would be a, a common way to refer to a faithful Christian. Uh, he's a real God-fearer. She fears the Lord. But today, we don't talk like that much anymore. We don't use that language. And it's a sad commentary on how we have overlooked, I fear, a very important theme in the Bible. Because the Bible speaks a great deal about fearing God, fearing the Lord. And, and our absence of using that language doesn't just mean that we have lost some of the vocabulary of the Bible. It also suggests that we have missed out, perhaps, or forgotten or neglected one of the chief considerations we ought to hold always about our God. The lack of appreciation for the true character and nature of God results in all kinds of practical difficulties in this world. A simple study of the phrases fear of God and fear of the Lord reveals that the Bible uses those phrases no less than 150 times. And when you add to that the many illustrations and examples of God's fearfulness and reasons He ought to be feared, we have well over 200 references to this attribute, this characteristic of our God. The reason that the fear of God is a major theme in the Bible is due to the fact that the God of the Bible is a fearful being. Psalm 89, verses 6 and 7 says this, For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around Him? Or consider Psalm 33, verse 8, which after recounting some of the mighty works of God, says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. The God of the Bible is so fearful that the only proper response of the creation that has come from Him is awe, reverence, fear. And in fact, Psalm number 67 says that that is going to be the response of all creation, as God blesses His people and through us causes His name to be known and hallowed throughout all the earth. We read in that psalm at the very end, Psalm 67, verse 7, God shall bless us, let all the ends of the earth fear Him. Well, if the Bible speaks so frequently of the fear of the Lord, because the Lord is a fearful being, and if we find ourselves so infrequently thinking about and speaking about the fear of the Lord, 
What then does that suggest about our thoughts of God? What does it say about us if we're not regularly bringing back into our way of thinking about life that we live all of life before the face of this God who is fearsome? Well, it suggests that we tend to think of God too lightly, that our thoughts of God are too small. It indicates that we've allowed our thoughts about God to drift away from what the Bible actually teaches about Him and that we have brought into our thinking about God thoughts that perhaps come more from our world than from Scripture. Well, if that is true, then brothers and sisters, we should acknowledge that we are in danger of missing God altogether, which is why this subject, the fear of the Lord, is so vitally important for us and timely for us today. There may not be a concept in all the Bible that is more misunderstood than the fear of the Lord. And so because of this, I think it will be profitable for us today to look at Scripture from Old Testament and New Testament, taking time to consider what God actually says about Himself in this vein. As we do so, I want to encourage each one of you to measure your own life and your own thoughts about God by what the Word of God actually teaches us. The late Scottish theologian John Murray, who gave his life teaching theology at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, begins the last chapter of his classic book on ethics, The Principles of Conduct, with this sentence. The fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. In other words, what he is saying is that genuine biblical spirituality is grounded in and is nurtured by a healthy fear of God. I believe he's exactly right in that assessment. And in order to see this, I just want to survey some of what the Bible teaches on this subject, looking at different passages from God's Word, identifying what they say to us about the significance and the place of fearing God in our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. And though we're going to look at many texts, I want to direct your attention first to Psalm number 111. Psalm 111. In this psalm, we find the psalmist extolling the greatness of God's works and the way that His works reveal His grace and His power. And after singing about this, the song concludes in verse 10 with these words, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And a good understanding comes to those who practice the fear of the Lord and the wisdom that results from that. So what this passage and other places in Scripture teach us is this, that true discipleship grows out of and continues to be nurtured by the fear of the Lord. So this has implications for our evangelism. It has implications for our discipleship. There's not any area of Christian life, not any area of the life of the church where what the Bible teaches about the fear of God is irrelevant. 
And if we're going to know the Lord, if we're going to represent the Lord, if we're going to grow in the Lord, then we have got to come to terms with this revelation of God Himself about His fearfulness. Well, what exactly does the Scripture mean when it exhorts us to fear the Lord? I want to consider that question with you by asking three other questions and looking to Scripture to find the answers. First of all, what kind of fear is it that God commends to us that we should have respecting Him? Because there are different kinds of fear. Secondly, what's the relationship between the fear of the Lord and discipleship? For us as Christians, how should we think of the relationship between what God says about fearing Him and our own spiritual welfare? And then thirdly, how do we cultivate such fear of the Lord? Well, first, what kind of fear is it that disciples of Jesus Christ are to have toward the Lord? That's a difficult question to understand and answer because there are different kinds of fear that are spoken of in the Bible. And if we don't recognize the distinctions, we'll be quickly led astray. We will fall into errors that the Scripture would warn us against and guide us to avoid. On the one hand, the Bible holds out the fear of God as an essential characteristic for a spiritually healthy child of God. It is, as John Murray says, the soul of godliness. But on the other hand, as in John, 1 John 4, 8, we read, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now what this means is that there are obviously at least two different kinds of fear. And we need to understand them both and recognize what the Scripture calls us to cultivate in our Christian lives and what the Scripture tells us that we are to avoid. There's one kind of fear that results in dread that causes us to run away from God, to put Him out of our thoughts, to not want to have anything to do with Him. This is much like the fear a thief has of a policeman. When he's in the midst of committing his crime, he's on the lookout, and if he hears a policeman, if he sees a policeman, he wants to run away. He doesn't want to be found out. But then there is a different kind of fear that the Bible commends, a fear that doesn't drive us away from God, but actually draws us to God. This is the kind of fear that we read about in the wonderful theological writings from the Middle Ages down to the present. Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, the Puritans, they all distinguish between these two ways of fearing God. They describe them in terms of a servile or slavish fear on the one hand, like the thief has toward a policeman, and a filial or godly fear on the other hand, like a child has for his father. Servile fear is the fear of a slave to a demanding taskmaster. He dreads his taskmaster. He doesn't want to be found out by his taskmaster. He operates out of terror. He fear, fears being punished if he fails doing what his master requires. But godly fear or filial fear, the fear of relationship between a child and a parent, is the fear that a son has toward a powerful, loving father. 
The son is moved by his father's greatness, moved by his father's goodness, and he fears his father in the sense that he is afraid of the thought of disappointing him or not living according to the principles and the rules that he knows his father values. The difference in these two types of fear extend from the difference in the relationship between the one who is to be feared and the one who does the fearing. When the relationship changes, the way of fear changes. Well, we read in the Scripture that God provokes both kinds of fear in people. The Bible makes a distinction between these two ways of fearing God, and we see it very clearly when God gave the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. You may be familiar with that. If you've not read it lately, I encourage you to go back and read Exodus 20 and and see what an amazing display is described there for us as God spoke out those ten words, the Ten Commandments, And his voice rang out, and Moses had prepared the people, and they're gathered around the mountain, and the text tells us that there was lightning from heaven, there was thunder, there was smoke, there was fire, there was trembling. And then in verse 20 of Exodus 20, Moses says this to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. So there's a kind of fear that they're not to engage in. But then he goes on and says, He has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you that you may not sin. So God speaks. The earth moves. The thunder and lightning comes. The smoke arises. And the people are terrified. And Moses says, don't be terrified. That's not the right response for the people of God at this awful display of God's majesty power put off terror god is doing this god is speaking this way so that you'll not be terrorized but that you will be found in awe and reverence both aspects of aspects of fear both terror and awe are provoked by the reality of god being revealed to sensible creatures listen to what john murray writes about this He says, these two meanings of fear enter into the concept of the fear of God. There is the dread or terror of the Lord, and there is the fear of reverential awe. There is the fear that consists of being afraid, and it elicits terror and anguish. And there is the fear of reverence. It elicits confidence and love. Scripture says that our God is a consuming fire. He is holy. He is sovereign. He is almighty. He rules and He overrules of His whole created world. Emperors and empires are established and destroyed at His command. He raises up one to prominence. He casts down another into insignificance. And He hates sin. And the Scripture says that He's angry with the wicked every day. And He will not let the wicked go unpunished. He is jealous for His own glory. The world and everything in this world was created by this God and for Him. He deserves. He requires that everything and everyone praise and worship Him. That such a one as He is should not evoke fear, 
should not evoke terror in his created world is a testimony to the irrationality that has arisen in the hearts and minds of people because of sin. Because the most reasonable response that a creature made by this God, commissioned by this God to represent Him as an image bearer in this world, knowing that you're separated from Him, knowing that you have sinned against Him, you've broken His commandments, the most rational response is to be terrified. The fear that God provokes, as I've said, can be divided into two broad categories. Let's look more carefully at this servile, slavish fear. This is the fear that's found in the person who, when confronted by the, by the reality of God, nevertheless continues in rebellion against God due to sin. This is what we see going on in the very Garden of Eden when God created Adam and Eve and all is right in the world. And Adam and Eve are in a right relationship with God. They walk with Him. They have sweet communion with Him until they sin. And after sin enters into the world, what do we see in Adam? Having disobeyed the command of his Creator, Adam goes and hides. And when God comes looking for him and says, Adam, where are you? We get Adam's response in Genesis 3, verse 10. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Why was he afraid? He was afraid because he knew the fearfulness of this God against whom he had sinned. And he knew that he had put himself in a position of liability. He knew that now he is liable to answer the consequences of his sin. This sort of terror at the thought of the Lord is often downplayed or even denied outright in our day by those who feel like they need to rehabilitate God's reputation in our culture. People have bad thoughts about God because sometimes Christians have not represented Him well. And so this way of thinking goes like this. We, we need people to know how merciful and kind and loving God is. And certainly He's all of those things. And people need to know that. But too often, those aspects of His character are set forth and this other reality of His fearfulness is hidden because we don't want God to have a bad reputation in our day. Scripture doesn't flinch at setting forth the full character of God and all of His fearfulness. Scripture is not concerned about our judgmental world. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that when rebellious sinners are confronted by the reality of God, the only rational response is to be terror-stricken. The fact that people live without God, before God, without being terrified of God, is an indication of what a number sin has done on our thoughts and our affections. We get a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 6. As God reveals to the Apostle John a vision. And in Revelation 6, we have the occasion of the opening of the sixth seal that is brought about, opened up by the Lamb of God. And when that sixth seal is opened, the glory of God is manifested. And listen to the way that Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17, describes the scene. 
When God's glory is manifested through the opening of that seal, the revelation reads, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Try to get that image in front of you. Kings, rulers, monarchs, generals, those who have commanded thousands successfully in battle, billionaires who have lacked nothing in this world, people who have been esteemed and praised and live their lives thinking they have everything under control. On that day, when the glory of God's manifested, they'll be begging the mountains to fall on them. They'll be running. They'll want to hide. Why? Because the wrath of this God who is so fearful is being manifested upon them. It's the only rational response for those who are living in rebellion to this God to have when they stop and think rightly about Him. This sort of fear is real and rational. And there's some of you here this morning, I'm sure, who are living in rebellion to God. And if you're honest, you just have to say that you haven't thought of Him that way. And friend, I'm so glad you're here. I hope you always come to this church to worship. But I hope that as you come, you will stop and consider, who is this God? Who's this God that we sing about? Who is this God that we have His Word read to us? Who is this God that is preached about and explained to us? And as you come to see the truth about God, you will own the truth about yourself. And you'll realize you need to be reconciled to Him. You need to turn away from how you've been living in rebellion and repent of your sin and go to Him for mercy and ask Him for grace and believe what He says about how He's provided grace and mercy in His Son, the Lord Jesus. And trust Christ. Be reconciled to this God. And if you refuse to be reconciled to Him, at least be honest enough to be terrified of Him. Because he is a fearful being. Well, this is a right kind of fear for those living in rebellion against God, but it's not the only kind of fear that the Bible talks about, and it's not the kind of fear that the Bible commends to believers in Jesus Christ, to those who have been reconciled to him through what Christ has done. That kind of fear leads to spiritual life and vitality. This is that gospel fear or filial fear, family type of fear. We might call it godly fear. The fear of a son toward his father. It's the fear that does not repel us from God because of our sin, but it draws us to God because of His grace. And this fear doesn't see anything less in God than the slavish fear sees. It sees all of that, but it sees more. It sees more in God because of His gracious salvation. It sees that this God, who rightfully is to be dreaded and we're to be terrified of in our sin, this same God who's not changed at all 
has done something to bring sinners to Himself. He's given up His only begotten Son. And we are drawn to Him as we trust His Son. And, and we stand in awe. And we revere Him. And we worship Him. And we fear Him as children who've been reconciled to Him. Jerry Bridges has written an excellent book on the fear of God. And if you want to study this more, and it's maybe a concept you haven't looked into much, I commend this book to you especially. It's called The Joy of Fearing God. In that book, Bridges talks about a Marine recruit by the name of Butch McGregor. And he talks about boot camp, where McGregor is going through all of the responsibilities and being whipped into shape. And one day during an inspection, a steely-eyed general comes and singles him out and begins to interrogate him. And he talks about the, the dread, the fear, the terror that McGregor felt toward that general. Well, years later, this man who was the Marine recruit, McGregor, is assigned to drive the general around in a, a war zone. And so he becomes his driver. They spend time together. He respects him. He has some admiration for him. He sees the way he treats other people. And he sees he's a, a man of integrity. He admires that. And he believes that the general has a real concern for him as well. But their relationship is distant until the car runs over a landmine. And the general's thrown from the car and McGregor is pinned in the car. And the general, though he's wounded pretty badly, comes back to the car and works diligently to get McGregor out of the car. And he saves his life and he is sent to a medical hospital, a medical facility and then transferred to a hospital. And he is in this hospital for weeks to recover. And every day, the general comes to visit him, sits by his bedside and talks to him. And during that convalescence period, McGregor says, he came to realize that this general really loved him. This general saved his life, and he said, I realized I loved him too. And though he continued to say, yes, sir, and no, sir, and he continued to salute the two stars on the shoulder, nevertheless, as soon as he could, he went back to his assignment of driving him around, knowing that the relationship has changed. He now respects and reveres this man who he once dreaded because this man has come and saved his life. He's enjoyed the experience of his love. Brothers and sisters, that's the way it is with us. The God whom we know in Jesus Christ is a fearful God. He's dreadful. He's, he's worth being terrified of. And if we were not his children, if we hadn't been loved by Him, if we weren't reconciled to Him, that would be a right response. But we have been reconciled by Him. We know that He loves us because He gave up His Son for us. And having given up His Son, He's done everything necessary to bring us into fellowship with Him. And He wants to be our God. He calls Himself our Father, and we are His children. And though we have such an intimate relationship with Him, He's still God. And so we revere Him. We stand in awe of Him. And we have a right kind of fear toward Him. Godly fear is what Christians are called to cultivate in our lives day by day. It's an attitude toward God that recognizes and remembers 
that all things that make him terrifying and terrifying and awesome are true they're still true he hasn't changed his character but because of his grace and mercy he's made us his children he has redeemed us and rescued us and we have come to know him as our father we have set aside that fear of slavery perfect love has cast out that fear that's what john means Why? Because that fear has to do with punishment and the fear of punishment. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. So we can look at this God. We can see everything the Bible says about Him. We don't have to try to rehabilitate His reputation. And we can stand in stunned wonder that this God is our God. This God's loved us. He's given His Son for us. He's welcomed us into His family. And so we worship Him with reverence and awe. As Christians, we know that our sins deserve to be punished eternally by His wrath. That's a terrifying thought. But as Christians, we also know our sins have been punished in Jesus Christ. Jesus has come and done everything necessary, earning the righteousness that God requires of us by never once sinning and then laying down His life on the cross in behalf of us for our sins so that what God requires, He's provided in Jesus. The execution our sins deserve, Jesus has tasted and experienced. And through Christ, we're redeemed. We're reconciled to this great, awesome God. We're no longer criminals before this God because Our relationship has been transformed. We're no longer on the run from Him. We're children in His family and we are drawn to Him. We have been welcomed at His table. And so as we consider and look honestly at what the Bible says about His fearful character, we're not repelled by that. We just stand by faith in stunned wonder that He's loved us. That He's for us. This is what we see time and time again in the book of Acts where the fear of God is manifested among the people of God. And the church's response is not paralysis. It's not running away, but it's worship. It's awe. It's reverence. In Acts chapter 5, we read about God killing two church members in the church of Jerusalem. And in verse 11 of Acts 5, after that event, this is Luke's summary. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Well, I guess so. (laughs) I mean, if, if God killed two people this morning in this congregation and it was known clearly that God did it, don't you think there would be a little different way of thinking about God than maybe what we walked in with? And as that spread throughout Greeley, don't you think people would begin to stand in awe, in fear? What kind of God are those people worshiping? Who is this God? Why would He do that? Fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. It's this relationship with God, this kind of family type of fear, this godly fear, This is what enabled the churches throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria, 
according to Acts 9, to have peace and be built up while walking in the fear of the Lord. Acts 9.31 Peace, built up in edification, while walking in the fear of the Lord, and at the same time, walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Not the fear of the Lord, or the comfort of the Holy Spirit, walking in the fear of the Lord with the comfort of the Holy Spirit at the same time. Brothers and sisters, that's not only possible, that's essential. It's what we must learn to do. We we must have our thoughts so shaped by what God's revealed about Himself in the Bible that we experience a right kind of reverence and awe, a godly fear, while at the same time experiencing the comfort that comes as We remember that He is our God. He lives in us. He is with us. He is for us. And Jesus Christ stands as an everlasting testimony to that. So we revere and we rejoice. John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, correctly said, nothing prevents believers from being afraid and at the same time possessing the surest consolation. Fear and faith can dwell in the same mind. And we've got to cultivate that. If we don't cultivate that, I, I, I fear that, that we will wind up spiritually misshaped, spiritually malformed, because we are not taking as we ought everything the Bible says about our God. Well, having considered the kind of fear that Christians are to have toward God, let's secondly ask the next question, what's the relationship between the fear of God and Christian discipleship? What's that relationship? Well, true discipleship arises out of the fear of God. As we read in Psalm 111, verse 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It starts, wisdom starts with this awareness of God. Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 14, verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Do you see all of these depict the entrance point into discipleship, the beginning of a right way of living and thinking? Salvation is described throughout both Old and New Testaments in terms of both knowledge and and wisdom. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus prays, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Salvation is knowledge of God. Knowledge of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul describes Jesus Christ having been made for us wisdom from God. And the Scripture says, all wisdom and all knowledge find their starting point in a person's life when that person experiences the fear of the Lord. This is why we find repeatedly in the book of Acts, Gentiles who are either converted or on their way to being converted being described as God-fearers. God-fearers. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 is described as a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms to people and prayed continually to God. Or Paul in Acts 13, who is preaching in the synagogue at Antioch in Pisidia, 
He addresses the congregation this way, men of Israel and you who fear God. Listen, Jews and Gentiles who have a right kind of fear toward their Creator. Again, in that same chapter, Paul says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has this salvation, the message of salvation, been sent. You remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross between two thieves? One scorned Him, ridiculed Him, but the other had a sense of who it was that was being crucified. And He responded to Him in fear. In fact, He said to His fellow thief, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? This recognition that true discipleship arises out of a fear of the Lord. It's what explains Paul's description of the unconverted world. Every unconverted person. In fact, brothers and sisters, if you want to read what your resume once was, go to Romans chapter 3 and read from verses 10 through 18. And those unconverted friends here, you're not a Christian. You want to know what God says about you? You want to know what He puts on your resume? Just go read Romans 3, 10 through 18 and see God's description of your life. And after describing the outworking of sin and so many wicked relationships and ways of living, Paul summarizes it all in verse 18. This is the foundation. This explains why the world is the way it is. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is the explanation for why people go on living godless lives. No fear of God. Spurgeon understands this beginning of fearing the Lord. He calls it the lowest grade of godly fear. But that 19th century English Baptist preacher goes on to say this, that here all piety, true piety, arises. Listen to his comments. Spurgeon says, By nature the sinner does not dread the wrath of God. He thinks sin a little thing. He looks upon its pleasures and forgets its penalties. He dares the Almighty to war and lifts his puny arm against the eternal. No sooner, however, is he awakened by God's Spirit than fear takes possession of his heart. The arrows of the Almighty drink up his spirit and thunders of the law roll in his ears. He feels his life to be uncertain and his body frail. He dreads death because he knows that death would be to him the prelude of destruction. And he dreads life. For life itself is intolerable when the wrath of God is poured out into his soul. To know God is to fear him because, as the author of Hebrews reminds us, he is a consuming fire. Therefore, it is impossible for sinners to be reconciled to God, this God against whom we've rebelled, without a measure of fear arising in our thoughts and affections. This is a point that we must not forget or ever compromise. If you ever feel yourself being tempted to try to rehabilitate God's reputation in the world, make sure you do not go beyond what the Scripture says. If we want people to know our God, we must make sure that they 
know him as he really is. That we set him before those whom we love and care about in the way that he himself has chosen to reveal himself. We need to be careful about this in our evangelism, brothers and sisters. We don't want to downplay God. We don't want to cover up anything that the Bible says about Him as we talk to those that we love that are outside of Christ that have not been reconciled to God. Don't water down what the Bible says about God. We must not do that even with our children. We need to be willing to say everything the Bible says about God to our children. Listen to what David says in Psalm 34, 11. Come, O children, listen to me. Listen to me. And what will he say to them? And I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Moms, dads, don't sell this short. Lovingly, sympathetically, with a fresh awareness in your own mind of what it means. Help your children to see the truth about God. He's not to be trifled with. He's not to be ignored. His reputation doesn't need to be rehabilitated. True discipleship arises out of the fear of the Lord at the outset of our faith. But the scripture goes on to teach us that true discipleship is nurtured by the fear of the Lord. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul admonishes us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. This means that our growth in sanctification, our progress in godliness, will happen in the context of fear and trembling. It means there's to be a proper kind of fear and trembling before God if we are going to advance in spiritual growth. When Christians have a godly fear of the Lord, it'll cause them to mature spiritually. And this happens in a variety of ways, but I want to call to your attention three very significant ways that spiritual growth is cultivated out of a right kind of godly fear. First, we see in Scripture, godly fear promotes true holiness. You remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? Sold as a slave by his brothers in sinful ways finds himself in the house of a man named Potiphar who was prominent in the community and he rises to a level of trust in Potiphar's household so that he's managing everything until Potiphar's wife decides she wants him and she seduces him. She tries to have him. And you remember what Joseph did? He didn't negotiate with her. He he didn't try to work out some kind of agreement between the two of them. Rather, he runs out of the house, leaving even the coat that she was clinging to. And he says in his own words, this great wickedness and sin against God, I cannot do. Why not, Joseph? Because God is a fearful being. It was the fear of the Lord that kept Joseph from being seduced. Or listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.17. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. As you live before God in this broken world, do so with fear, knowing the God before whom you live. 
Colossians 3, Paul admonishes slaves how they are to respond to their masters. He says in verse 22, bondservants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, in other words, just when they're around or just to get approval, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And Paul tells us that even as Christians, we are to live in relationship to each other. All Christians are to live with a humble kind of submissive attitude toward one another. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence. It's the same word, fear of the Lord. Why do we endure with one another? Why do we humbly submit ourselves to one another? It's not always because the person that we're submitting ourselves to is so worthy of our submission. It's because God rules, reigns. Our God who's reconciled us in Christ, this fearful God, is the one who's given us this instruction. In 2 Corinthians 6, in the first part of verse seven, or chapter 7, Paul writes some admonitions about how Christians are to pursue holiness, what holiness looks like, and the things that we have in Christ, and remembering that we're joined to Christ. And then he summarizes it all up in this admonition in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 7. He says, Since we have these promises, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Holiness will be brought to completion in the fear of the Lord. Could it be, brother, sister, could it be that you're not growing in holiness any more than you are because you have not taken to heart what it means to fear the Lord? Could it be that you've domesticated God in your thoughts? And that you've lost sight of the one who has redeemed you? The one who has brought you to his table? Have you allowed the intimacy that you have with God to deaden the truth, the reality of how high and exalted he is in holiness and power and might? Holiness will be perfected in the fear of the Lord. When Nehemiah was appointed governor of Judah after the exile of the Jews and they were returned to Jerusalem, he didn't conduct himself the way that previous governors had done. They were indulgent in their living. They were tyrannical in their practices. But listen to the way Nehemiah describes his rule as governor in Nehemiah 5.15. He says, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people. But I did not do so. Why not, Nehemiah? Because of the fear of the Lord. I'm not going to treat people unjustly. I'm not going to withhold mercy. Why? Because people deserve it? No, not primarily. Because I fear the Lord. And this is how God has called me to live in His world. When you fear God, it will change the way you live. It will change the choices that you make. It will change the way you talk. It will change the way you carry out relationships. It will change your thoughts. It will cause you not to want to sin. It will keep you from derisively dismissing 
good, right, godly counsel. It will prevent you from saying, yeah, I see what the Bible says, but my situation is so unique. Once you hear what God says, your disposition will be, I will work this out with fear and trembling. Brothers and sisters, don't neglect the fear of the Lord in your Christian discipleship. Cultivate it. Cultivate it. Godly fear encourages growth and holiness. Secondly, godly fear stirs true worship. It stirs true worship. I've referred to this a couple of times already, but in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, listen to what the author says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. What is acceptable worship? Acceptable worship with reverence. The word can be translated godly fear. With godly fear and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. You see how he attaches the truth about God's nature as a consuming fire as the rationale, the reason why we should worship God with godly fear and awe? We worship Him that way because of who He is. He's a consuming fire. Yes, He's our Father in Jesus Christ. He's reconciled us to Himself. And we ought to praise Him for that and be amazed at that. But we should always remember that the God who's reconciled us to Himself is a consuming fire. (laughs) We should be lost in wonder as we contemplate the realities of what it means to have this God as our Father. I wonder how much of our anemic and trivial worship today can be traced to the fact that there's little fear of God among us. I'm so blessed by the the singing and the songs that were sung this morning that talked about these very things, the character of God, the passage in Isaiah 40 that was read, just the reminders that who it is that we are coming to worship. Brothers and sisters, may you never lose sight of that and may you never allow yourself to be apathetic in any aspect of corporate worship. Don't let other people sing for you. Don't be satisfied to stand there without singing. Our God's a consuming fire and He deserves to be worshipped with godly fear and with all. Thirdly, godly fear motivates mission. Revelation 14, 6, and 7 has been called God's final sermon to the world. He sends a messenger from heaven with the message of the gospel. Listen to it. Listen to Revelation 14, 6, and 7. John says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to all who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Isn't that what we sense our stewardship to be? We're stewards of the gospel to carry it to every corner of the world, every tribe, nation, every tongue, every people. Well, here is a portrait of God sending a messenger from heaven to proclaim this everlasting God in His gospel. And listen to what he says in verse 7. Here's what that angel said with a loud voice. Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of the water. The gospel, fear God. 
Come to know God in the only way you can, which is to see Him as He really is, to see yourself as you really are, to recognize that apart from mercy and grace that He might show you, you cannot be rightly reconciled to Him. And then discover His mercy and grace that He has lavished upon people by giving up His own Son and run to His Son, cling to His Son, turn from your sin and acknowledge that this God has made salvation available to you. He has sent His Son to save sinners and rejoice in that good news and worship Him, fear Him, and give Him glory. Paul understood this. In his own apostolic ministry, in his evangelistic ministry personally, in 2 Corinthians 5.11, he describes it like this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Why did Paul put up with everything he put up with? Why did he endure being cut off from his own people? Beaten, shipwrecked, arrested, stoned? Why? What was it that kept driving him, motivating him to tell people the good news that there is salvation for sinners, that God has acted, there's grace and mercy for those who rebelled against God? What was it? Paul says, I know the fear of the Lord. I know He is a great God to be feared. Could it be that we witness so infrequently and we justify our lack of concern for the eternal welfare of others because we've lost a sense of fearing God? Could it be that we've allowed our thoughts of God to become too human? If we would remember what Paul said was his motivation, if we remember what that angel declared as he came to preach the message of the gospel from heaven to earth, brothers and sisters, it would empower and motivate our mission. It would strengthen us in evangelism. So we see that the fear of the Lord has a direct relationship to the work of discipleship, both at the outset of our Christian life as well as throughout our Christian lives. Well, having considered how the Bible instructs Christians to have godly fear of the Lord and what the relationship is between such fear and discipleship, I want to ask the third question. How can such godly fear of the Lord be cultivated? How do we cultivate it? Well, first, recognize that godly fear has been implanted into every true believer. If you're a Christian, then you have a measure of godly fear planted within you. And if you think yourself a Christian, and what I've been talking about today sounds completely foreign to you and maybe even repulsive to you, then I'd encourage you just to deal with these texts. Go back into the Bible and ask God to show you. Maybe I've misstated it or uh, you hadn't heard it right, but go back and look at what the Word says about this subject and ask yourself, am I really reconciled to God if these thoughts about God repulse me? Fearing God is a part of the blessing of the New Covenant. It's what was promised in the Old Testament, brought to fulfillment through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah 32, when the prophet announced the 
coming day when God would make a new covenant with his people. Listen to the way he put it in verses 38 through 40. He says, they shall be my people, God speaking. I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. He's going to give them one heart so that we might fear him forever. This is what God promised to do in the Old Testament. What by the power of his spirit he has done is doing in this New Testament age. And then he goes on and he says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. This is how God keeps us saved. He, he works in us by His Spirit to awaken us to the truth about who He is so that as we remember Him and we worship Him, we will inevitably have a measure of fear and awe and reverence for Him that will keep us on the pathway. So there is an inherent implantation of the fear of the Lord in every true Christian. But though that is true, it is also true that we are admonished to employ the means that God has provided that we might cultivate this fear and grow in this fear and not let this be hijacked either to a wrong way of thinking about God or deadened so that we no longer regard Him as worthy of fear and reverence. How do we do that? Several things. Certainly we should pray. Pray that God will enable us to cultivate a right kind of reverential fear of Him. The psalmist did this in Psalm 86, verse 11. Unite my heart to fear Your name. Unite my heart to fear you. Have you ever prayed that? Do you ever see a need to pray that? Why do you think the psalmist felt the need to pray that? Because I, It gives me hope because my affections are so divided in so many ways so often. And the psalmist must have felt that, so he, he's praying, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Give me such a holistic sense of who I am before you and who you are as you've revealed yourself to be that I will not have these competing interests that would deaden my fear of you. Unite my heart to fear your name. Pray. Pray that prayer. In addition to that, study God's works. Consider the way that the Word of God shows us how to contemplate the work of God. This is fascinating to see various ways in the Psalms, in the prophets, that the works of God are recounted and then God summarizes or intertwines in that recounting the call to fear Him. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 5 as the Lord is rebuking Judah because of their hardness of heart and failing to consider His ways. Jeremiah 5.21, he says this, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? See, he's rebuking his people because they've become nonchalant in their worship, casual in their thoughts about God. And he says, you don't fear me? Have you forgotten that I'm worthy of you revering me? Then he gives the explanation as to why they ought to fear him. And it's not what we might expect. Jeremiah 5.22, he says, I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, 
a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart, and they've turned aside and gone away. We live by the beach in Florida. My kids have grown up just a few miles from the beach. And when they were younger, we would go to the beach pretty often. And we'd try to take advantage of those opportunities. And sometimes I'd get down on my knees with my youngest kids, and I'd say, let's watch the waves come in. Let's watch, and let's see how far the wave goes. And let's see if we can find the grain of sand, the last one that's wet, and the first one that's dry. It exists. We probably can't see it, but it exists. And we do all that and say, you know what? God decided which one would get wet. God decided which one would stay dry. Isn't this God incredible? If we think about God this way, God says, you ought to fear me. But he is calling his people to account. He is admonishing and rebuking them because he says, look what I've done for you. Look what I do in creation. Look what I do every day in nature. And you just pass it by. I think I could give you the Tom Askell revised version of this for Colorado. You leave church today and you drive to your homes or places to eat and there are the Rockies. These majestic mountains. God did that. God did that. How can we live in His creation that screams out to us so many ways, every day, every night, that He is a fearful God and not revere Him? In that rebuke Jeremiah 5 the Lord goes on and says this talking of his people who don't fear him he says they do not say in their hearts let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season and the autumn rain and the spring rain and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have kept good from you summer fall winter spring rains, a harvest that comes up. God says, I've done all this for you. And yet you don't say, let us fear the Lord. You see, if we're thinking biblically, if we're thinking the way God is calling His people to think, then we would turn all of creation into a classroom. And we would become sensitized increasingly to the reality that this is our God's work. John Calvin called creation the theater of God's glory. It's the the stage on which he works out for everyone to see the kind of God he is. And though there could be, certainly there are many other reasons that should motivate us to fear the Lord. God wants to make sure that nobody has any excuse and so he goes straight to nature. Look at what I do every day, every day. And yet you don't fear me. Study the works of the Lord. Again, I'm so glad Isaiah 40 was read from this morning. What a majestic display of God's sovereign majesty that chapter gives us. Just meditate through Isaiah 40. And remember that this is our God. The things that stun us in creation, they're beyond our ability to comprehend. They're insignificant to God. The... the, Mighty ones on earth, 
like grasshoppers to him. Kim Jong-il, North Korea, grasshopper. Donald Trump, grasshopper. Xi Jinping in China, grasshopper. All the waters of the earth, it's not even a little bubble in the hands of God. All of the heavens and the vast expanses of the universe, all of the solar systems that have been discovered and those we haven't discovered, it's like the little span of God's hand. Meditate on the works of God as they are revealed to us in Scripture. Meditate on the things that God has done, the Scripture reveals. Creation, providence, and providence. Have you ever looked back on your life? The things that maybe you were not thinking deeply about, but now you see that that turn, that introduction, that opportunity, that failure has resulted in so many things that have come into your life today that you would not want to be in this world without. God did that. God was weaving your life together to bring you where you are as you are. Consider that, how meticulous His providence is, and worship Him in reverence and fear. Think about our redemption that we have in Christ. The fact that He has given up His Son for us. He come for us. He didn't leave us in our sin. And fear Him. Think about the stories like King Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible, this great king of Babylon, thought he was it. And he's talking about how great he is, and God says, I will show you. And he just strikes him dumb like an animal. For seven times, probably seven years, he's out there just like a wild animal, eating grass, until God gives him his mind back. And he says, now I know there's a God in heaven. He does whatever he wants to in heaven. He does whatever he wants to in earth. That's our God. Or the story of Daniel and the lion's dens. When we teach this to our children, we should help them to see that it is our God who kept those lions from touching Daniel. Or his buddies, the three buddies that got thrown into the fiery furnace. It's our God that kept them from even smelling like smoke when they walked out. Read the Exodus account. See how God humbled the mightiest empire and the mightiest emperor in the world. Stop and consider Acts 5, 1 Corinthians 11, where the scripture tells us that God killed people in New Testament churches. Ask yourself, do I understand that this is my God? Do I understand that this is the God I worship? Study God's works. Also study His character, His attributes, His eternality and uniqueness, His sovereignty, His power, His authority. Have you ever stopped to consider how Jesus invokes the authority of God when calling His disciples to fear God? Just listen to this, Matthew 10, 28. He sent his disciples to preach the gospel. He says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You're going to be going into a world where people will hate you. People will ridicule you. They might threaten you. They might do injury to you. Don't fear them. Fear the one who can not only kill your body but can kill your soul. He's telling this to his disciples. He makes it even more plain in Luke's account of another occasion in a mixed crowd in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, where Luke records him saying, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, but after having that, have nothing more they can do. 
But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he's killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Does that sound like a New Testament sermon to you? It is. It's the words of our Lord and Savior. We ought to take it to heart and consider the authority and the power of this God with whom we have to do. But perhaps more important than any of these, study the grace of God that is in Jesus Christ. Just stop and think about our salvation. John Bunyan, that Baptist Puritan, wrote this, Godly fear flows from a sense of the love and kindness of God to the soul. Where there is no sense of hope of the kindness and mercy of God by Jesus Christ, there can be none of this fear, but rather wrath and despair, which produces a fear that is devilish. But godly fear flows from a sense of hope of mercy from God by Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, consider God's great love for sinners. John tells us, 1 John 14, and this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. And he gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I was so glad to sing about propitiation this morning. You know what propitiation is? Propitiation is what Jesus accomplished at the cross when God in his holiness, who hates sin, who will not let the soul of the sinner go unpunished, sets his aim in pouring out his wrath against our sin. And Jesus, who came from God, steps in our place so that the anger and the wrath of God, completely justified, is executed against us, but because Christ has taken our place, he absorbs that wrath and he carries it away and our God is propitiated. Think about that. God wouldn't save us without that. God is so fearful, holy, He wouldn't spare His own Son in order to save sinners. Consider how this love and grace that God has shown us in Jesus has come to us. Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare His own Son delivered Him up for us all. Isaiah 53, 6, The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The grace of God in salvation revealed to us in Jesus Christ is calculated to evoke a godly fear in those who experience it. This is why the psalmist sings in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, If you, O Lord, could mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But he goes on. But with you there is forgiveness. Why? That you may be feared. Catches us off guard. With you there's forgiveness that you may be loved, that you may be esteemed, you may be appreciated. We would expect that. No, that you may be feared. What's he thinking about? What is it about the forgiveness of God that evokes fear in the right-thinking Christian who's experienced forgiveness? It's the cost of that forgiveness. It's the realization that it took the death of God's own Son and God wouldn't spare Him so that He might forgive us. And as we think about what God's done for us in Christ, not withholding His wrath from the Son of His love, God against God, as we say, it ought to cause us 
to bow before this God with fear, trembling, reverence, awe, wonder. What kind of love is this? What kind of grace is this? What kind of God is this? Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the soul of godliness. It's essential for true, healthy Christian discipleship. Without it, there can be no biblical spirituality. Where it declines or is not cultivated, there can be no spiritual growth. In one sense, it's the lack of fearing God that is at the root of every problem that this world currently has. Every sin out there, every sin in here arises from a lack of fear of God. All unrighteousness, all the wickedness of all people at all times and all places is a result, as Paul puts it in Romans 3.18, result of there being no fear of God before their eyes. This is a great tragedy because there's no one like our God, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones. And those who fail to fear this God in this life will come to fear Him in the life to come. There is a day appointed when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. God will be seen as He really is. And if you've lived your life without fearing this God, friend, on that day, You'll be terrified. But God has brought you here today to consider the truth about your Creator. That you might be spared the terror of that day by coming to bow to Him now, confessing your sin against Him, turning away from that sin, and humbly receiving the grace that He provides in His Son, Jesus Christ so that you no longer have to live in terror, but you can live in wonder and awe that this God has loved you, that this God has accepted you through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus. If you've never trusted Christ, it's no accident you're here. I would plead with you in His behalf to be reconciled to your God. Where you are, as you are, you don't have to jump through a hoop you don't have to do anything physical. Where you are, as you are, just cry out to God from inside your soul right now and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Save me. Offer yourself up to Him as He has required by turning from sin and trusting Jesus. If you want to know more about this, you can talk to the pastors, the elders here. I'm probably, you can talk to any church member here, I'm sure. They'd be glad to explain more about this and pray with you and help you to see how this truth, this grace from this fearful God is for you if you'll turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must not ever allow ourselves to entertain light thoughts about God. He is still a consuming fire. He still has authority not only to kill the body, but after that to cast the soul into hell. We must think rightly about Him and be amazed that this God, He's our God. He's our Father. He's brought us into His family. He welcomes us at His table. So let's worship Him with fear, with reverence.
Pray with me. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for not leaving us in our sin and ignorance about You. Forgive us of our superficial thoughts about You. Forgive us for being satisfied with incomplete thoughts about You. Humble us before Your Word by the power of Your Spirit. Draw near to us and reveal Yourself to us more and more in Jesus Christ. I pray for unconverted people here that You'd speak to them with a voice that raises the dead. Call them to Christ. I pray for this church that You would build them up in joy and fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit that through this congregation the good news of salvation might ring out throughout Greeley in this part of their world. Hear us today. Seal to our hearts everything that's good and true that's been considered. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.